Hello, everyone. I'm Joe Biden as the old man and waitress. And I'm Joe Bennett as Dawn in waitress. And this podcast won't run a week. Your bi-weekly musical theater podcast where we talk about musicals and all Joe production of waitress. Do you know who Joe Bennett is? No. Joe Bennett <laughs> is Kathy Bates's character from The Office. Oh, right. Oh my god. I was thinking about The Office. I And look, I know The Office is a big show for a lot of people. It's not that big for me. But I was thinking about it recently. Specifically about James Spader's character in The Office. Oh, such, Robert California. Such a beautiful addition to that show when oh, they god. needed someone to save them. They really did. And he's so good. I love James Spader. I love James Spader. He, his character is so weird but yet it just fits into this universe so well yeah like i love any other show it would be too much i think but but after you have michael scott like you can't exactly you can do whatever you want well not whatever you want but someone as like affluent as james spader playing such a wild character believably yeah 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 oh god he's so funny i love and I don't think any other, I mean, listen, Office fans, if you're tuning in, please tell me, but I don't think any other Office fans, like, find this moment, like, as riveting as I do, but the um, episode where they're trying to find a new boss over the two episodes, and they keep talking about this one guy who keeps saying, like, I have to take vacation off on these two weeks because I'm going to the Finger Lakes with my family, like, I have to. I have yeah. to take that time off. And it's like a huge point of contention throughout the two episodes. And then in the yeah. last second of the f- second episode, you meet who that person is. And it's Jim Carrey. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and, he's, and he just says, like, I actually, like, came all the way down here from the Finger Lakes. And I told my par- my family I was going on a hike. I have to get back <laughs> up there so that they don't think I'm dead. <laughs> It's just so good. And that that piece of the... That was, like, in my opinion, one of the last pieces of, like, the old version of the show. What The Office was, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. Yeah, it's so funny. I saw a TikTok last week that it was like, you, I'll, you get $4 million, but every day for, like, a year, you have to sit down, phone away be fully focused on the scott's tots episode of the office every day for a year but you get four million dollars at the end of it i'd do it and i'm like you know what i think the first 10 or so times it would be really difficult but once you hit that like two week mark you probably desensitize to it hey mrs scott what you gonna do what you gonna do to make a dream come true hey mrs scott (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I that show, that episode is extremely hard to watch. It's 
one of the most difficult episodes of any television show I've ever seen in my life. But at the end, when Michael Scott offers to pay for that one kid's books, it makes the whole episode worth it. And he says, you tell your aunt to not cash this check before the date that I say. And you call me before you do, because I got to move money around. I got to do little things. Oh, God, it's so difficult. It is. It's so awful. And Stanley laughing, being like, it's been 10 years already. <laughs> like, 10 years. Gotta love The Office. Oh, my God. Well, how the hell are you? I'm fine. I uh, have a bit of a cold. I'm at home in Nashville right now. I am at home in Nashville. Seymour came with me this time, which is wonderful. He's laying beside me sleeping right now. And, um... Yeah, that's really it. Saw Oppenheimer. I also saw Oppenheimer yeah. since we last recorded. We talked about uh, Barbie, but now we can talk about Oppenheimer. Yeah, I... I need to see it again. Sure. But go ahead. I didn't love I didn't love Oppenheimer. I really I, enjoyed it. <laughs> I thought it was boring. Um, and I realized once I had a little more time to sit with it, I was like, oh, I just don't care about the, like boy genius narrative like that doesn't do it for me of like i get to be a terrible husband and father but it's all right i'm a genius well i don't think Um, it was all right it it just everyone was like whatever you want big guy anything for you that's what it felt like to me um yeah i mean yeah wasn't my favorite well i thought it was a really interesting piece of history to watch get played out and then to watch i mean i didn't know anything about the trials that happened after so i thought that was super interesting and i thought it was really relevant to what's going on with our political climate currently of the you know it's just a whose voice is louder than the other i mean they completely made a false narrative or attempted to make a false narrative about sure about oppenheimer himself and to say that he was a security threat when in reality he was doing something he was doing his um he was doing his he was working towards his skill and he had a hypothesis and it came to fruition and then who someone got their their, their hands on it and made him use it in a way that he realized he didn't feel comfortable using it but then like but then at the end, it's like, well, what else would you do? I mean, you made a bomb, you know, but it's yeah. just like, that's just what that's I am. I'm a physician. I make I use physics and I and I solve problems and I create things. And yeah, uh, I think to say that you're a national security threat, it's like, no, the person who wanted to use this as a weapon should be the national security threat. <clears throat> yeah, I think there's somewhere underneath all of it there's a really interesting story about someone who goes from only thinking theoretically about like well in theory it would work like this to like having something actually play out but it just for me I guess it got like really bogged down by the like third act which is we've the bomb has been made they dropped it uh and so now it's like all politics and stuff and yeah but it's about morality more than politics too i 
I guess, but also I'm like, the morality is like, we shouldn't have, I don't know. It's the morality was like always there for me, I guess of like, because I knew what happened. It's a historical event of like, yeah, we dropped two bombs on Japan. I think though, it's not about like civil morality. It's about Oppenheimer's morality and him deciding and understanding that like that scene with the and spoilers friends spoilers the scene with gary oldman as as president as the president oh and, yeah oh that's who that was yeah, i was, was like gary i oldman. know who that is yeah but him was the scene as the president and oppenheimer saying i am really struggling with the fact that i killed thousands of people i did that and then the president looking at him and saying no you didn't do anything i did that's my victory or he'd say victory but it was the subtext of you're not going to take that away from me yeah that was mine and it was like oh we are dealing with something and i think that was a moment just like those kinds of inter the internal conversation of those things it was very um the whole movie was very uh uh, Chekhovian in that way, where it was a lot about, sure. it was more about like what's happening underneath everything that's happening, not so much about the actual plot, which I thought was super interesting. It felt like a play. It really did kind of feel like a play. Parts of it definitely felt like a play. Um, and I love that the, we didn't especially see the, the bomb. Like, I do too. I really, I felt like if I. I would make a couple adjustments personally, but if I was only going to be able to make one adjustment, I would make it to where you don't even hear the, like, really loud, like, because they do kind of throughout the first part of the movie, you hear, like, these really loud sounds that sound like a bomb. Um, And then, you know, when the bomb actually drops, it's just, like, the sound of people, like, breathing. Mm Mm-hmm. And for me, I would have, like, no loud bomb sounds throughout that whole beginning, sound of people breathing, and then once that ends and you actually see people being, like, pushed back or the light or whatever, that's when you hear the bomb sound. Um, Mm. I thought it was... Those were really loud. I did love... A scene I loved was in the, like, I guess auditorium when people are, like... Yeah. That was a really cool scene. Oh my god, that um, scene was so well crafted. Yeah. And yeah, Killian was Murphy really... was just so good, I thought. Yeah, Killian Murphy was really good. Hate that they cast him as a Jewish person because he's not Jewish. Um Sure, yeah. And so I was very once I like found that out cuz I was like, well, he must be Jewish. Because Oppenheimer spends so much time being like, yeah, well, like, those are my people the Nazis are killing over there. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was very good. And I I don't want to take away from his performance at all. But I was like, come on, guys. Yeah. At least if you're going to cast a non-Jewish person, don't have him repeatedly mention, like, yeah, the Jewish people are my people, you know? Yeah. Yeah, but wasn't my favorite. It's no Barbie movie, so. I mean, they're just two, they're just so polar opposites of each other. It just, I think it felt very, like I said, very Chekhovian to me, which is was super interesting. I thought looking at it 
from like a like a film perspective and like a uh it just felt like a piece of historical art being made and someone yeah. i saw something online that was like it felt like it was a it was a new yorker a new yorker review and it was um maybe not the new yorker maybe it was new york post it doesn't matter but it said um it just felt like a history channel movie and i was like why is that bad <laughs> like it, yeah i don't a, think that's a bad thing no but they were they were using it as like a it was a negative thing and mm. it's like it's a true it's a piece of history i thought it was really artfully done i thought it was done in a way that felt like it took care of how heavy of a piece of history this is um and i don't think it glorified it which i thought was really nice but it also didn't like it wasn't violent towards the wrong people it just kind of felt like this is the information yeah that's what it, at yeah. least to me and i like i said i need to see it again because there was a lot a lot yeah. of uh, language that I did not understand. So I'm seeing no. it with my papa who like studied physics. <laughs> I'm oh, seeing great. it with him so this he'll weekend. Be able to... I feel like your papa is going to... All of the moments that to me, I was like, how... That is a white man. How am I supposed to know who that is? Mm-hmm. Like, like, I feel like he'll be like, oh, yes, of course. Tell her. This yeah. physicist that did this, 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 and this. Um, I will say every time... Einstein came on screen. I had a little laugh because it felt like in a 90s sitcom where a character who's been gone for a while comes back and is like, oh, hey, guys. Yeah. And there's like a bass drum, like, boom, 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 Yeah. Um, and the audience is like, oh, my God, he's back. Um, <laughs> yeah. God, the guy they cast as Einstein was really good, though. He was really good. The, his makeup and stuff they did on him was really great. Yeah. And there was like this conversation of um my papa and I were talking about this about atoms and how I remember learning this in third grade that like nothing at all is actually being still. Everything has, is made of atoms and so and they're constantly moving and they and then in Oppenheimer um, I don't know why in third grade that stuck out to me. It's the only piece of science I remember learning in third grade. But <laughs> I remember that and because I thought it was just so strange. And then in Oppenheimer, it ta- he talks about how our everything is made of atoms and there's an illusion that we can't pass through each other. And listen, I'm not a physicist, so don't come at me for that very elementary version of whatever he said but that was like the basic sense of what he said and it made me realize after leaving the theater thinking about what we do as actors and how in the Meisner technique you you try to sync you are in sync with each other and in all of theater but in a Meisner technique it's like matching each other's energies and you hold space and you breathe with each other until you link up and then you are together and your energies are matching so if you think about it in reality of or a scientific way it's not so far-fetched that that's actually what's happening that it's not this like oh i'm i'm just finding i'm being on the same page with you it's like no our atoms are moving in sync with each other sure 
if we can allow each other to genuinely link with each other's energy, that is what's happening. Our atoms are moving in sync and we are, we end up being like one thing. And I, it just made it feel so much more like, oh, I do have control of that. Like if you have control of, of your person in that way, it is like a superpower. And that's where empathy comes in. That's where that's how you can, whenever you can feel someone's anxiety, it's because their atoms are going, probably, right? Probably. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it just made me really think about acting theory uh, when it comes to the energetic side of, yeah. emotional energy side of it. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's a movie, and I think it's a movie worth seeing. I just didn't love it. <laughs> but I, there is a lot of really interesting conversation that I think can come from it, which is why I think it's worth seeing. Yeah. Um, well, and like, yeah, I mean, not everybody has to love it. It's just it made my brain fire in a lot of ways. Yeah. I just, I also yeah. just thought like the performances were really spectacular from pretty yeah, much the, every single person in the cast yeah the performances were all very good very well done yeah robert downey jr is so great love him no he was great uh, yeah matt damon was great yeah you know what he was and i was not expecting him to be i expected him to kind of be the weak link i guess i mean i love matt damon but i and I mean, he's a phenomenal actor, but yeah, yeah. I kind of, I thought maybe I wouldn't, I didn't expect him to be the weak link, but I thought he would stick out. Sure. Maybe because that's... I'd be like, that's Matt Damon. Yeah. That's but, Matt Damon. But no, Where's I mean. Ben Affleck. Yeah. Their best Casey friends. Affleck was in it. Was he? I. Yeah. There were so many people. That cast list was so long. Yeah. I was like, I don't. I know I missed people because it was just like there's so many people and like every single person who comes in it's like oh yeah that's Josh Peck or oh yeah that's Josh Peck stood out to me I was like me too why why is Josh Peck in this but he was pretty good he was pretty solid yeah so you know it was just random yeah well completely unrelated to Oppenheimer not even close to similar at all. We're going to be talking about Amelie the Musical today. Yeah, we are. I guess... <clears throat> excuse me. I guess in the... They have similar senses of whimsy and fun. Yeah. They're both very whimsical and very fun. Um, yeah, so Amelie's a really interesting little show, actually. Um, let's get into it. So, it's based on the 2001 romantic comedy by the same name, which used to be on Netflix. It's not on Netflix anymore, so I didn't get a chance to watch it before the episode like I wanted to, but that's okay. Have you seen it before? I've never seen it before. Oh. I really, I wanted to. I was like, oh, this is a perfect time to watch it. Right. And it's like not on any streaming services right now. So, it's it's definitely at the top of my list um, yeah because it looks like something that i would love 
Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a really artistically beautiful movie. Mm-hmm. Um, music and lyrics are by Massey and Nathan Tyson. And then the book is by Craig Lucas. Oh. Yep. Oh, wait. I You said Craig Lucas and I heard George Lucas. <laughs> Not I, the same. You know that Very different. Um, it premiered at Berkeley Rep in September of 2015, and it opened on Broadway on April 3rd, 2017. And it closed on Broadway May 21st, 2017. So it had a very short run, less than two months. Um, it completely changed. So between it closing in 2017 and it opening on the West End in December of 2019, the show like completely changed. It completely transformed. It had new orchestrations and expanded repertoire of songs and new staging. Um, and that opened in December of 2019. Something about Craig Lucas that you will enjoy. Yes. He was in Broadway musicals, including Shenandoah, On the 20th Century, Rex, and Sweeney Todd. Steven Sondheim later told him that he was a better writer than an actor. Work. Slay, Steve. <laughs> Slay, Steve. Um, critics praised the improvements uh, in the West End production over the Broadway production. Um, it got really middling reviews on Broadway, and most of those reviews were critical of the score, so changing the score and transforming the orchestrations really worked in its favor. Um, the London production was nominated for three Olivier Awards, um, including... Best New Musical, Best Actress in a Musical for, I think her name was Audrey Bisson, um, who played Amelie, and then Best Original Score, and it was also nominated for a Grammy Award for Best Musical Theater Album. Um, and, like, that's it. Like, there's not a ton of stuff going on. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um... Yeah, so Amelie, a really interesting little show that's had a lot of changes and transformation. There's not a ton of information about it because it is a really, it's not a musical that's been done a lot since it was on Broadway. Um, <clears throat> and I don't know, maybe I think it's a pretty cool little show and I think it would be interesting for it to be done more in the future. So I look forward to that. I think that it feels like it came out in the wrong time period. It feels like it is a child of, musically, it is a child of, we talked about this with, um, I can't remember which one it was, but it, 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 oh, maybe Elf, where it just feels like it is a, a product of the early 2010, like, musical, movie musicals where the score mm-hmm. is, is quirky, but it doesn't have a lot of now it doesn't feel like it has a lot of substance because that kind of sound 
kind of had a minor moment and then it's moved it's moved away from that yeah it just doesn't have much that makes it stand alone other than what the movie itself brings and the movie is its its own beautiful thing and it's interesting and has and I see why they want to make it a musical because you watch the world through Amelie's eyes and it and the whole world is very colorful and whimsical and um there is music involved and it makes a lot of sense to make it a musical however the music does not match the broadway version does not match the how interesting of a story that we are witnessing and a person that we're watching interesting of a person that we're watching through her eyes i i agree i think i think the london production really took the time that it had between the Broadway and the West End production and in transforming those orchestrations and the songs like it no longer sounds like that kind of quirky 2000s movie musical anymore it really does sound much more interesting and like the actors are playing instruments on stage it's just a very cool it and I mentioned this to you before we started recording, it sounds and feels more like once to me than, you know, like a an elf or something like that. Which I think... Which I think is, like, so much more interesting because it has more of a unique quality to it, even though it is, like, once-esque. Once is, I think, I just think that there's no way to, like, copy something like Once. It can be inspiration for things, but you can't really copy its sound in the same way that that, like, model of the early 2000s musical, straight tone, quirky musical theater number. You can't really, a contemporary musical, you can't really, you can kind of copy and paste that. Yeah. You can't really copy and paste Once because it's so much more than just the music that you know what i mean no i i know exactly what you mean yeah i think i was told by someone i was in assassins with who was obsessed with the london production of amelie anytime he talked about it he was like the london production is so much better period it's the best version it's so good it's one of my favorite shows of all time so oh okay he, he really liked it um So, I'm, after having listened to the London production, I'm like, okay, no, I I understand more of why you like it so much. Because based on the Broadway cast recording with people who I love were in that original cast. Philippa Sue, love her. Adam Chandler Barat. Adam Chandler Barat. I love love him. Love him. I rewatch it like I watched there's like a slime tutorial on on YouTube and I watched some clips from it and I was watching his song and I was like he is so fun I forgot how fun he is this is a perfect show for him it's a perfect show for him agreed it's in like a glove if it's just great um but I do prefer the London Amelie to the Broadway, um, like Philip Sue's Amelie is the Broadway one, which is still good and she sounds great. 
She's very cute, but I think that having someone whose voice is a little bit different, and I really wish I could put it into words, but her voice, Audrey's voice is a little bit like reedier. Like it sounds like it's really cool. And if you haven't listened to it, you should, Um, because I think she's so interesting. Yeah, I haven't listened to that recording. I think you should. I think you would like her voice a lot. Um, And one last little thing that I'll mention before I get into the synopsis. In the Broadway production, you have young Amelie, where we see Amelie as a child growing up. And then you have adult Amelie, which is who we mainly spend our time with in the show. Young Amelie was played by an adult or a human child in the Broadway production, but then in the West End production, they decided to make it a puppet. So give it a little bit of that Will Byers treatment. Wait, say that again? In the original Broadway cast, young Amelie, child Amelie was played by a, a, an actor, a, right. a child. In the West End production, they changed that. And so now young Amelie is played by adult Amelie, but it's a puppet. Oh, I like that. I like that too. I really do. And the puppets, you can see pictures of it online. The puppets are really fucking cool in this show. It's really Yeah, even in the Broadway production, the Broadway production, the the puppets are good too. Yeah. There's some weird ones, but. Sure. But I, I really like I liked the young Amelie puppet in the West End well, production. I like I like that they um that it's again we're we're watching the world through Amelie's eyes. So why mm-hmm. would we see a young a human version of her? Yeah. We should see the version of herself that she sees as an adult. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, I think that the puppet of Amelie is a really interesting move let's get into the story so i'm gonna be doing the west end synopsis which is different than the broadway synopsis sorry that's the one i'm gonna do it's the one everyone seems to prefer well okay i don't know that one as well so fantastic i'll learn something that's okay yeah um so the story of amelie this is act one is narrated by all the people in her life they tell us how every moment of our lives and everyone we meet are connected in ways we may not know or understand born to two neurotic and self-centered parents Raphael and amandine young amelie doesn't learn how to love one day during her monthly medical exam her heart beats wildly and Raphael misdiagnoses her with a heart defect leading to the parents homeschooling her away from the outside world. They give her a goldfish named Fluffy to keep as a friend. One day, during a geometry lesson, Amelie gets distracted by Fluffy, causing her mother to scold her. Uh, Her mother is Amandine. Amandine's irritating neuroticism causes Fluffy the goldfish to become suicidal, leading to him jumping out of his bowl. When chaos ensues... um, Raphael and Amandine attempt to get the fish back into its bowl and they decide it's gotta go and Amelie has to put him into a nearby canal. So already we're off to a a quirky little start um, with a suicidal goldfish. Quirky is the name of the game. Quirky is the name of the game and I love a quirky little show. 
Later on, Amandine and Amelie go to the Notre Dame Cathedral, where they pray for a baby brother. On their way out, a Canadian tourist hurls himself off of a parapet in the cathedral, killing Amandine when he lands on her. A funeral is held, and shortly after, Raphael makes a shrine for his wife's ashes, including a garden gnome that reminds him of her. And then Amelie grows up, she turns 17, and she leaves home. So she's got a weird little childhood. And honestly, if I was going to compare this to a show that's not once, it does also give me Matilda vibes. Um, It feels like if once and Matilda had like a baby. Oh, sure. Um, Just a little bit weird, but like in a good way. Yeah. Well, um, fantastical. Yeah, very fantastical. Um, five years after that, Amelie is a waitress at the Two Windmills Cafe, uh, and the staff and the customers are all caught in a routine of dissatisfaction. I'm not going to get into all of it. Everyone's a little bit dissatisfied with their life in one way or another. Um, Amelie observes them all without making a deep connection or revealing anything about herself. Every night, Amelie goes home alone, following the same route and the same routine, spying on her neighbors with a small telescope and watching TV. At the same time, another Parisian loner named Nino, a.k.a. Mr. Adam Chandler Barat, goes from metro station to metro station collecting the torn halves of photographs discarded at photo booths. He sings of the forgotten stories in the snapshots, implying a similar proclivity for observation as our little Miss Amelie. Alone in her apartment, Amelie sees the news of Lady Diana's death. And when she sees this, she drops her perfume bottle, which dislodges a tile at the edge of the room, revealing a small metal box filled with children's treasures. Um, ooh, excuse me. Amelie vows to find the owner of the box and return it, and if he's grateful, she will devote her life to being a do-gooder. If not, so be it. Amelie visits a local grocer, um, and for some reason, she thinks that the box might belong to him. Um, he lived in the apartment before her, but it's not his. He suggests that she goes to visit his parents, who might remember who lived in the apartment before they did. At a metro station, Amelie and Nino bump into each other and briefly interact as Nino retrieves a photo strip from the bottom of her shoe, puzzling her. Their hearts beat loudly at each other, but Amelie is late for her train. Um, the grocer's parents tell Amelie that the person who lived in the apartment before them was named Dominique Brie Duteau. Returning home, Amelie meets Nino once more at a different metro station, and he takes note of the mysterious box she holds, um, but runs off in pursuit of someone he thinks he recognizes. Uh, traveling from one end of Paris to another in pursuit of this Brideto person, Amelie doesn't have any luck finding him. On the second floor landing of her apartment, she meets a neighbor named Julian, who suffers from a rare bone disease causing him to avoid contact for fear of breaking a bone. He invites her into his apartment where he spends all of his time painting copies of Renoir's Luncheon of the Boating Party. He's never able to capture the expression of the face of one of the figures, a lonely woman. 
whose situation Amelie projects herself onto. Julian corrects Amelie's incorrect information. Uh, the former tenant was named Brit Tado, not Brit de Toe. <laughs> so she's like, oh, okay, cool. And Dominique, the person that she's looking for, is on his way home when a payphone rings. He answers, and Amelie, disguising her voice from a nearby from the cafe, which is nearby, instructs him to look down. He does, seeing his childhood treasure box and feeling a flood of memories. He stumbles into the cafe and tries to tell the people there about his miracle. On an impulse, he calls his ex-wife and begs for a chance to see her and their son again. She agrees. Before leaving, uh, this man, Britado, kisses Amelie on the head in a rush of elation and thanks everyone for his good fortune. Amelie has found her mission. She leaves work early and looks for someone else to help. She tries, or she grabs a blind beggar and takes him on a tour of Montmartre, um, describing his surroundings to him. Elated by her success, Amelie returns home to watch the funeral of Princess Diana on TV, imagining herself as a world-famous Jew-gooder who also dies too young. Inside Westminster Abbey, Elton John sings a song in praise of the newly martyred Amelie. And that's how Act 1 ends. I did just have this thought. A double feature. You see Diana the musical in the afternoon and then Amelie in the evening. I love. It's a perfect evening. A perfect day. Speaking of Diana the musical, friend of the pod, Rachel Lind... Is going to be doing a concert of Diana the Musical at 54 Below. I am so excited for her. I wish I could see it, but I'm going to be out of town when it happens. So I am so excited. I I hope I get to see it. I I think I'll I'll be able to, but um, y'all should y'all should go and absolutely. Well, it's like celebrate the beauty of Rachel Lind and Diana the Musical. Absolutely, it's just so good. Um. Anyway, Act Two. You get your raz. I assume there's like a raspberry cocktail available for this because I I don't know much raspberries. about raspberries. Raspberries. I don't know much about the movie, but I do know she like eats raspberries off the tips of her fingers. Yeah, um, that I think that's a big part of the mu- of the movie. So there better be a a raspberry based cocktail. Um, Act 2. Amelie and Nino are sitting on a train. They sing of their love for each other, but do not know the other one is a few feet away. Ugh, classic rom-com. At a stop, Nino stands up to leave. Amelie spots him and hides. Amelie visits her father. His shrine to Amandine has grown in size, obsessively tended to. She tries to get her dad to go on a trip, like he's always wanted to, or to visit her. But he dismisses the idea, saying that he's better off in his backyard taking care of the gnome. When he leaves, he, she steals the gnome and gives it to someone at a metro station, uh, where Amelie once again sees Nino, laid for his train. He leaves behind a photo album. She finds it and takes it to Julian. The two peruse the pages. So, so many faces of people who tore their photos in two halves now joined together in this album. The two take notice of one face that appears repeatedly taken in every photo booth in Paris and wonder who it could be. 
In the back of the book is the name and address of this Nino guy. Uh, Julian picks up the idea that Amelie may have feelings for the owner of the album and tells her to return the album and befriend him, or else she's better off joining a convent. Amelie gets an idea. <laughs> Disguised as a nun, Amelie visits the sex shop where Nino works. While a co-worker goes to find him in another room, Amelie tries to sort out what she wants from this stranger. At the last minute, she flees, terrified to connect with this man who intrigues her. She keeps the album. Based on how his co-worker describes her, Nino realizes that the woman with the album is the same woman from the Metro that he's in love with. Oh, my God. Uh, Julian asks Amelie why she didn't speak to Nino. Dismissing him, she thinks back to a geometry lesson her mother taught her as a child, a metaphor for how true connection with others is impossible. She is determined to find a way to break out of her isolation. She sends a letter to Nino and with a photograph of herself dressed as Zorro in a cryptic message. Focusing back on her anonymous good deeds, she then composes a letter to a woman named Gina whose husband um, died. Uh, in the voice of Gina's deceased husband, uh, so she writes the letter in the voice of her dead husband and then posts it with a cover letter from the Postal Service claiming to have unearthed the letter from a plane crash in the Andes. That's how he died. He died in a plane crash after cheating on her uh, with his secretary. Uh, in it, Gina's ex-husband declares his undying love and confesses to having made a mistake running away with his secretary. With this letter, Gina gains closure and is finally able to move on. Through Amelie, Georgette, and Joseph, two more people from the cafe, find themselves alone in the loo and begin to fall in love. God, this is such a rom-com. I know that it's based on a rom-com, but this is a rom-com i think in in um it's more of a rom-com in the musical because in the movie it is like a french romance like it's a romantic yeah romanticized film and this is and it's quirky and fun and funny but it's not so much like a rom-com where it is like a romance you know what i mean yeah this is yeah. much more, I feel like it's much more Americanized, which makes it more of a rom-com for yeah. this. And I think it's all of these, like, little stories of, like, the people in Amelie's life that also feels very Matilda to me. All of the, like, stories she made up about the trapeze artist and everything. Um, Agreed. Uh, those two people begin to fall in love. At the same time, Nino is plastering Paris with leaflets of Amelie's face in the Zorro mask with the header, Have you seen this woman? Knowing exactly the game she's playing, he wonders out loud how he's falling in love for someone who doesn't want to be found. Uh, Raphael, Amelie's father, shows up to the cafe with a series of postcards he's received from around the globe, written by the gnome. There's no place like gnome is the name of the song, which I think is funny. Amelie assures him of his worries and tells him to embrace the change while introducing him to the woman she gave the gnome to, a woman named Suzanne. Uh, the grocer comes in and Amelie is unable to stomach the cruelty he shows to his uh, 
sweet little assistant uh, and feeds him a fig tart, causing him to hallucinate a nightmare. He apologizes to his assistant for his abuse and admits that he is deeply flawed. Just... Uh, the two people who fell in love in the bathroom uh, emerge disheveled. We know what they were doing. Uh, Amelie travels around Paris spray painting quotes uh, from one of the cafe's patrons is like an unpublished author. And so she spray paints quotes from his books um, reflecting on her journey thus far. So that this is when times are hard for dreamers comes in. So like imagine my surprise when it comes in act two. Well, listen, we love an overdone musical theater piece from a show that nobody really knows. It's true. We do. I really thought it came in Act 1, but surprise. Well, times are hard it's, for those dreamers. Times are hard for dreamers. They really, It really is. It's expensive. It really is. Inflation is bad. Inflation's bad. Inflation's bad, y'all. Times are hard. Um, later that night reflecting, or later that night, um, the writer sees a quote from his unpublished work and swells with pride. Um, as Amelie watches from a distance, she finds one of Nino's flyers and is outraged. She sends him another message to meet her at 5 p.m. Um, on a carousel with another And then riddle. she sings, and then, she, oh, the riddle is, it's a scandal, it's an it's outrage. An outrage. Oklahoma posts pictures of a woman today. It's a scandal. It's an outrage. But it's I French, love that so song. Like, it's it's a scandal. It's an outrage. Outrage. Outrageous. It is outrageous. Oui. Um. <clears throat> so she sends him a little note with a riddle. When he shows up, he's met with a series of blue arrows guiding him towards a telescope on the top of the hill. Through the telescope, he sees Amelie returning his album to the basket on his bicycle. By the time he races back, she is gone. This bitch has a lot of time on her hands. Well, she's got a lot of time because she's been stuck up in her house her whole life. She's got, I gotta make every minute of every hour count, mama. I guess. Damn. Uh, a payphone rings, he answers, and Amelie tells him, that the man in the photo album who keeps reappearing is a ghost. Despite her attempts to keep the game going, Nino pleads that they meet in person or else he is hanging up. She says she will meet him the following Tuesday at 2 p.m. at the cafe. At the appointed time, Nino is late. Amelie worries about what might have happened to him. Her imagined scenario spirals out of control. Nino does show up, and when he does, she tries to hide girl what <laughs> girl you girl. you asked him to come um, you invited him here but um she tries to hide uh when he asks about her masked photo she denies her identity but ultimately runs to the bathroom frustrated tired and hurt nino leaves and uh one of the cafe patrons chases after him amelie comes out from hiding and another cafe patron named joseph convinces her that nino left with this patron who was a woman so rough uh she runs out heartbroken and 
things happen. Uh, the woman returns with Nino, who thinks Amelie is still in the bathroom. So she went out to go get him. And this guy's like, yeah, he left with her. She leaves, devastated. And then he comes wow. back. This is just like Romeo and Juliet. Is it not? It's the same thing. If you waited you know, two seconds before you killed yourself, Lamar, you would not. Everything would have been fine. Happy ever after would have happened. Oh, that's, yeah. Okay, but whatever. Um, the ladies interrogate Nino to make sure he's a suitable suitor for Amelie. After admitting he's in love with her and his belief that she truly understands him, they give him Amelie's home address, confessing that she is no longer in the bathroom. Back home, Julian asks about Nino. Amelie snaps at him, telling him to mind his own business and to paint his own painting rather than obsessively copy Renoir's. In response, he tells her to live her own life instead of the lives of others. Maybe should have thought about that, bitch. Should have. Read her. Uh, Alone, she promises to leave Paris to live in further isolation. Nino shows up at her door And though she doesn't want him to leave, she doesn't want to let him in either. He begs her to stop suppressing her feelings and to let him inside. And the song Stay, which is one of my favorite songs in the show. Um, It's beautiful. Why won't you stay? I'm down on on my my knees. knees. Exactly. That's that's the song. song. It's Jennifer Nettles. I'm so tired of being lonely. lonely. I can't give you what you need. God, I love that song uh, so much. <laughs> when she begs you to go. <laughs> this so same show, but instead of in Paris, it takes place in like Austin, Texas. <laughs> and it's all country music. Um, all sung by Jennifer Nettles. Exactly. Jennifer Nettles plays Amelie. Or in the in this version, it's Amelia. or Amelia. Yeah, Amelia. Um, Julian calls, uh, telling Amelie to look out her window. He shows her that he had finally painted an original work of art, a portrait of her. He urges her to open the door for Nino, or she'll never find love. She... Damn. I know, he's fucking brutal. She's like, okay, fine, whatever. So she, like, opens the door, and very gingerly, Nino and Amelie, I almost said Amelia... Approach one another and kiss. Okay. Okay. I'm saying she has a surprise. Amelie takes Nino to a photo booth. Whips out a strap on. (laughs) Whips out a strap on and then fucks him in the photo booth. Uh, The photo (laughs) booth is out of order. A repairman shows up and that is the man in all the photos. A test... Or... Oh, okay. Test runs to check that the booth works properly. I didn't read this far. In the synopsis until just now. So that's like, oh, okay, no, that makes sense. Um, Nino thanks Amelie for solving the mystery. As they take photos in the newly fixed booth, Amelie and Nino reflect on their newfound happiness and wonder what the future holds for them. The last little bit of narration reveals that Raphael finally sets off on an international trip. The company reminds Amelie and Nino and themselves that everyone and everything is connected in ways we do not know. The future may be unclear, but they will face it together. The end. Aye, aye, aye. That is but such a crazy little show. 
Um, but cute. Very cute, but like, good lord, is there so much plot? There's so much plot, and like, you can't just be like, she does some good deeds, because like, all the good deeds lead to other good deeds, lead to other good deeds. It's just a lot. Yeah. There's a lot that happens. It's a cute little show, though. I I do think it probably makes a lot more sense on stage than, like, listening to it or reading about it. So hopefully I'll get a chance yeah. to see it at some point. Because I think it looks like a show that I would really like. Yeah, I, I mean, the movie is so, so fantastic and beautiful yeah. and fun and very French um, and just makes you want to, like live a french lifestyle um oh yeah but the i'd be so interested to see a musical like this as an interactive yeah like a an immersive experience. immersive is the word i was looking for yes absolutely i think yeah this i think would be really cool in like yeah. an immersive space, like a you're lar- in the cafe or something. Exactly, you're like you're in a large cafe. Yeah. Um. Very. Uh, sleep no more. <laughs> mhm. No, it's very. Or it's a- or like great the Great Gatsby musical that's happening. Like. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think it would. It's just there's so much going on and it seems like the kind of story that you need to see a couple of times to like catch everything. Yeah. Um and it's so fantastical that it would be really cool to see how they do all of the fantastical things that have to happen. Mhm. The fish. I feel like you could make suicide. it Yeah, I feel like you could just like make it really magical if it was immersive. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think it's a cute little show. And I mean, I just think I'm I'm just so disinterested in like like I shouldn't say I'm disinterested cuz that's not true. Like the like we have to do everything proscenium style. Like I guess I'm disinterested in that idea. I agree. I'm not disinterested in proscenium style cuz that's not true. No. But it's that it's that we it's the norm you have to do it that way it's like no there's so many options and just because it's a musical doesn't mean that it can't be it can't have a unique spin like i here lies love was not my favorite show i've ever seen but i thought it was such a cool concept and i think that it's gonna revolutionize musical theater for that reason like i do think that musicals are going to start producers are going to think about what musicals can be yeah and i do think that it was inspired by great comet absolutely well it's like the idea like proscenium has just automatically for whatever reason become the baseline of what theater is and it's like i i similar to you i'm much more interested in shows where there is no real wall between the audience and the action that's happening on stage. Have you heard about this Uncle Vanya that happened? Mm-mm. Chekhov's Uncle Vanya. Um, it was in an apartment. Sick. They like, yeah. And I 
want to see it so badly. It, like, was sold out for the whole run. Walt Spangler, who was the um, set designer for Stranger Things, was Mm -hmm. the set designer for it. And it was, like, sold out for the entire run. And um, I think they're trying to, like, bring it back. Uh, I really want to see it. Yeah. But it's, like, how interesting is that? Yeah, like, I think I'm just at a point in my life where I... I love a little silly little proscenium Broadway show. Of course. Of course. But I'm much more interested and excited about shows that are different. I mean, there's a reason why, yeah. like, my, my favorite show, my favorite theatrical experience I had from 2010 to 2020, because I wrote them all down. Because I wanted, like, at the end, in 2019, when everyone was like, this was my favorite, like, movie I saw in these 10 years or whatever. I did my, like, shows that I saw. My favorite one was Beardo, which is a Dave Malloy musical about Rasputin. I talk about it, Mm -hmm. I feel like, all the time. But it, they did it at a Lutheran church that was, like, in the middle of being renovated. So there was scaffolding and people, like, came down the aisle and it was happening all around you. And it was like, yeah, yeah. It's different. It's exciting. It's interesting. And it gives you so much more room as a director and an actor to experiment. I completely agree. And the... What was I just about to say? Spongebob is a big... Is another one. Like, you went in thinking, like, okay, a Spongebob musical. But then it was so different from... So different. So different from anything we had seen and it it just it was just so fun to watch because of that yeah just like interesting theater and interesting ways of doing theater and it just feels more human while it while still being it's just it's just creative and oh i saw parade oh yeah oh my god that is i mean this genuinely the best piece of theater i've ever seen it's high praise it is high praise but it's just true like from beginning to end from the direction from the performances from the set design from the story itself i mean everything about it the music it was just perfect but yet not perfect that it felt polished yeah it was just it it just reminded you of like what we're doing and Mm -hmm. why we're doing it yeah you know um what was your god it was beautiful lord Um, one of your favorite moments i'll say i mean honestly my favorite moment was probably well god there was a couple I think the one that impacted me the most, which I'm sure probably a lot of people would say this, was, maybe a lot of people won't say this, but it's the very end where he is, he has been taken, kidnapped from prison, and he's about to be hung, and he says, will you please cover me? And they were like, what are you talking about? And he said, if you, when this happens, I, 
I will be exposed. Can I please be covered? Can I please be covered? I'll be exposed. And I just was like, oh, like it just was so heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, I, uh, in, then I think before, after that, um, I was so confused why it is not over yet was the sing was like the single for this production, you know? Yeah. Um, and watching it though, I was like, oh, this is the defying gravity of the show. Absolutely. This, this is the, because you, you felt so much joy and the way that Michael Arden directed it, it just was like everything came to a peak and you were on the emotional journey with both Lucille and, um, uh, Leo, Leo the whole time. And you, you were just as excited for them as they were excited for themselves for that moment. Like you just wanted to get up and be like, yes, like, let's go, you know, let's get this. And I just wasn't expecting that for that song. I just thought it was a really fun, uplifting song. And I didn't know anything about the show. I knew the story, but I didn't know. I had never really listened to the soundtrack. I didn't do the episode. I was, I was missed that episode. Um, I was busy and couldn't, so Rachel did it. So, like, I had no real stake in this musical. Sure. And I was so overwhelmed by so much of it. So, I that was just really um, a moment where I, it was an unexpected uh, song that I did not think was, like, the big climax it, I thought All the Wasted Time was going to be that for me, but All the Wasted Time was similar, but a diff, but a different yeah. kind of coming together, you know? Yeah. We got to see them fall in love, which yeah. was beautiful. Oh, it's such a beautiful oh show. God. Yeah. And everyone was so well cast. Like, I was not on Michaela Diamond's side during You Don't Know This Man. I was like... I don't know about this. Like, she's yeah. good, but this is not really doing it for me. I just didn't think she was... She felt like she was... She didn't have the ability to go to where I thought Lucille needed to. But then the second act happened, and you do it alone, Leo. Like, that the whole... I mean, oh. that's the first thing... One of the first things you see happen in the second act. Holy crap. Did she start second act and just not stop? Yeah. She was awesome. She was beautiful and so strong and just, oh, Lord, I was obsessed. Yeah. I and really... Fred of the... Sorry, go ahead. No. Oh, no, you go ahead. Just, I was going to mention that Fred of the podcast, Courtney, was in it and good Lord, did she sound amazing. And oh, yeah. I mean, her, her song gets stuck in my head. Um I mean, Rumbling and Rollin' is just such a great song. Yeah. No, she's... Bitch can fucking sing. She can sing. Yeah, she can sing. that voice is wild. Um, Yeah. I can't wait to see what she does next. Absolutely. I really hope that... Two things, and then we should Dreamcast. One, I really hope that this Broadway revival will bring Parade to more theaters around the country because i think it's a such a good show b such a necessary show right now 
And two, I think that Michael Arden is one of the best theatrical directors of our generation. I think he's brilliant. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I I really, really agree with you. I've never seen something where I walked away going, if the direction, if someone else directed this, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have had the same impact. Yeah. Like, he was just... He's just so you smart. Could, so smart. And there was a moment where he, where, um, Ben Platt, where it's in the courtroom, it's at, it's in Act 1 where they're doing all the court stuff, and little things about transitions where I was like, God, that's a smart director, where the, um, uh, Ben Platt was sitting next to his lawyer, Leo was sitting next to his lawyer, and he needs to transition to get up onto the stage, or up onto the, like, platform, and, but he was on the side of the audience so he could see him, right? But yeah. then there's a point where the lawyer gets up and so and they switched seats, but it was so no one would have noticed it. But that scene was just moving so fluidly that I was like watching, I was like, these transitions are insane. And I was so I was watching meticulously at the transitions. And yeah. so I watched I watched Ben Platt shift over a chair very gently and quickly, like choreography. And I was like, that's weird. I wonder what he's about to do next. And then he got up a few moments later and did, um... Why don't you come up to my oh, office? No, no, no. Not no? that part. It was after that. It was when oh. he got up and did his, um... Oh, um I don't... I don't I speak, speak my mind. My mind. I yeah. don't... Yeah. Oh, yeah. That part. And it was just, how can we make sure that this transition is the least clunky it can be so it can just, he can just take the whole room and make it silent? Yeah. It it was so simple. It was so small. No one would have noticed it, but I fucking did. And I was flabbergasted. But the whole show was filled with transitions like that. Yeah. And it needed to be that way because of how it quickly everything moved. Exactly. Exactly. It's so, you can't create space and time for those transitions they have to just happen because Um, you need to feel the anxiety and anticipation of what he's feeling exactly and if you stop to like transition things over that totally halts your momentum yeah um yeah no i think michael arden is brilliant and i'm i'm very excited to see what he directs next because i think he's really good at picking things to do and mm. I think he does them brilliantly, so I'm very excited for him to direct whatever it is that he's going to do next. Yeah, I can't wait. Um, also, I mean, last thing I'll say about Parade for now. Well, two things. One's a quick thing. First, the tra- the like scene where all the girls are are making their testimonies, mm-hmm. and it's during the "Why don't you come out to my yeah. house?" That He'll part. Call my but then, name. yeah, Why but so name? they're. So they're um, on the the girls are on the chair sw- gently. Did you saw it right? No, I didn't get to see it. Oh, so the girls are sitting. There's a chair up on the platform, mm-hmm. and the girls are 
each one is sitting on the chair, but then gently like turning as and getting off of the chair as the other one is getting on the chair as they're all three singing. He calls oh, my wow. name. It was what a brilliant way of doing a montage in real time. Exactly. Yeah. And it was so heart wrenching. Like it just was. Oh, it was so great. And then of course you've got Ben Platt coming in doing the why don't you come out tonight which was the first song i ever listened to from parade by the way which is not the song you want to listen to first i was like what is it what is happening yeah i can only imagine how confused you were i was so deeply Um, confused yeah Um, and the last thing i'll say is that i will never say another bad thing about ben platt other than his nepotism yeah because he is does not hold he does not hold his nepotism well but no but damn was he brilliant in this show i will say i'm very glad that he is playing a more age-appropriate role me too that i'm like he will he's is gonna be he's considered a great after this like he was he was he deserves, I mean, all the flowers he's gotten. Like, I yeah. mean. Yeah. But, you know, still the nepotism. The I'm like, nepotism you just own it. it. Just yeah. own it. If like, he, you have the talent. But just fucking own it. If he owned it, I would be so much, I think, more giving of grace to him. But, like. You, you, I wish you got to see him in this role. I, maybe, I'm sure there's a slime tutorial somewhere. Maybe I'll, I'll look it up. I'm sure it's not the sure. same. But, you yeah. know, it's. <laughs> anyway, like. I, yeah, let's Dreamcast. <laughs> mm-hmm. Let's Dreamcast. I could I could talk about my feelings about Ben Platt for ages, but we should Dreamcast. Um, this is a this is such a difficult show to Dreamcast because yeah, there's so many characters, but also I think that this show requires, especially if you're doing the West End version, it requires a true ensemble. Of people mm-hmm. because you have people double cast, triple cast even, yeah, and like they're all in charge of telling this story. Um, so with that being said, I didn't cast everybody. I did uh, try my hand at. I, I did Amelie and Nino, of course, and then yeah. I cast two other people because I knew that I wanted them to be um, in this show because I think they would be really interesting in this show, um, and then, like, a double casting that I thought would be interesting for them. Um, I, that's so funny because, like, I cast... Amelie and Nino, and then I cast two other people as well. That's so funny. But um, I didn't do it in the same way that you did. They're just, they're two specific characters that I was like, oh, I know who I want to play these people, and they can play whatever other characters they want as well. Yeah. So, um, for Amelie, I truly think Amelie should be cast by, like, an unknown. I, I'm much more... Yeah. Because, because of who she is. Um, and she is supposed to be this, like, fresh-faced person who is afraid but like trying to make her way in the world and so I'm much more interested in an unknown however 
listening to this and listening to the Broadway production, I thought if this show or in this movie had come out years and years ago, I think Julie Andrews would have been a beautiful Amelie. Oh my god, that's really, really great. Just, but I think she would Philippa have Philippa been... Sue is kind of our generation's Julie Andrews, musically, I mean. Musically, like yeah. I mean, look, she's done... Uh, Car- or not Carousel, wow, Camelot. Camelot. So all she's got to do is the next revival of Sound of Music. Yeah. Yeah. But I think Julie Andrews would have been a beautiful Amelie. Um, yeah, I agree with that. If this had come around at the right time for her. Yeah, I just like... Philippa Sue's voice is really unmatched. Like, it's really, again, it's just perfect like it's kind of flawless and it and it's frustrating how genuinely easy it is and yeah um which makes i think casting anyone behind her really difficult other than if it's Danae benton yeah Danae benton um, is the exception she is the exception i totally agree that i think an unknown is better i also think that casting someone who's an actor first mm-hmm. for this role would be really superb. Jesse Mueller would be beautiful, but I don't necessarily think that she needs to play this part either, you know? No. So I had a hard time. Audra McDonald would be really great. Yeah, like when like a carousel era Audra McDonald. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean maybe like that. a Lindsay Mendez also. Like sure. I guess Yeah. I mean um I actually think Lindsay Mendez would be great. I'm into that. Yeah. I didn't even think about her until I said, until you said Carousel, Audra. Interesting. Uh, But yeah, I think like an Audra because she's a good actor. She's, excuse me, a great actor. Her voice is gentle and flawless, but yet has a lot of confidence and power behind it. And she is silly and funny as well but not like pick me exactly exactly you know yeah it's a very it's a a fine line you have to walk for your amelie yeah um for nino if i can be fully honest the main way i cast nino is thinking who would i also like to see as henry in next to normal i know (laughs) Um, I, i mean i hear that because that's that's what I know um, Adam Chandler Barrett best for. And my mm-hmm. first thought was, like, Isaac Cole Powell. I think he would be very cute. Yeah. I think he's... I, I think that they're both very good-looking guys. I think they're both good-looking in ways that aren't typical. Conventional, yeah. Conventional, yeah. Um, so I think Isaac Cole Powell would be good. I think Jelani Aladdin would also be really good. Um, mm. and then also Jonathan Groff. I think Jonathan Groff would be great. Yeah. Ooh, Jonathan Groff would be really great. Yeah. Like just after Spring Awakening era, Jonathan Groff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fuck it. Castley and Michelle is Amelie. No, never. <laughs> <laughs> never. Never. No, thanks. No, but yeah. Yeah. I, I thought like. Gavin Creel, like young Gavin Creel. Like Millie Gavin Creel? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 
Ethan Slater comes to mind too. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, a Wesley Taylor. Sure. I would love to yeah. see Wesley Taylor do something like this. I feel like the roles he plays generally have such an edge to them. Well, I mean, think about him in Adam's family, though. <gasps> That's true. You know what? That's a great point. I'd forgotten yeah. about Adam's family. Um, I my first pick though, and I, I actually hold on. I don't know his name. Give me one second. <laughs> Okay, Justin Cooley from Kimberly Akimbo. Yes. He's my number one pick. I think he would be perfect in this. Yeah, definitely. He's he's very interesting. I'm excited to see what he will do after Kimberly Akimbo. Me too. Like, where, where is his career going next? Um, yeah, no, he's very interesting. He would definitely be a Nino. Um, anybody else? No, that's it. Great. So the next, um, these are like the two people, like the two extra people I cast. Um, my, the first person is, um, Julian, who is... Um, the painter who is the bone disease and then, um, Raphael, who is her father. I also think you could add someone else to that little list. Um, but I cast Christian Borel. (laughs) Sure. I think that he, I would be really interested to see him take on a role that's like multiple roles, um. In an ensemble Like piece. in Spamalot? <gasps> yes, like in Spamalot. Speaking of Speaking Spamalot. Of Spamalot. Coming back to Broadway. Oh, I'm so excited. So excited. I need to be in that fucking room. You gotta to be, be in that fucking room. I gotta be in the Spamalot room, y'all. I'm putting it into the universe right now. Yeah, you gotta be in this in the room, room where it happens. Yeah, spam a lot. Call her. Cast me as that uh, lady of the lake standby. Yeah, Telsey. Telsey, ring ring. I played it in community college, community college, community theater yeah. in college. And I heard you were really anyway. good. Um. Yeah, so Christian Borel definitely as the father, and then the painter guy who's like, if you if you don't. Admit that you love him. You're a sad loser, bitch. I just think he'd be great as that. Um, Yeah. And then the other extra person I cast, I'll just do them both together, was um, I cast her. She would be playing the mother. And then she would also be playing a character named Suzanne, who is the owner of the cafe that Amelie works at, who... um, she worked as a trapeze artist until her partner dropped her, causing a career-ending injury. Um, and I cast Leslie Margarita. For similar awesome. reasons as I cast Christian Borel. I think they both have really big personalities. And I think that that would translate really well to playing multiple roles in a show like this. So you know what's so funny? I also cast the mother and father. Oh, that is As so my funny. two. 
That is very funny because they are not big roles no. throughout the whole show. But it's because I had two people that I'm like, I want them as those roles. And yeah, yeah they can play throughout. Sure. Christopher Sieber as yes. the dad. Yeah, definitely. And a, as and as any character throughout it. And then Jackie Hoffman as the mom. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So. I'm into that. That is so funny that we both that cast so the mom and dad. Without even I thought you were going to cast the um, the person that you cast as the second role for the dad. I thought that who you that's who you were going to cast. I thought that was going to be your like one. Oh, yeah. Nope. So, interesting. Surprise. Interesting. Surprise. Nope. Um that's Amelie. Amelie. Um Amelie. What a weird little show. Um yeah. we're going to be doing a much less weird show uh for our next episode with a very special guest. Very um, special. We're going to be discussing Les Mis with renowned photographer, hi, multi-hyphenate artist. Multi-hyphenate artist. Multi-hyphenate artist, Mr. Michael Kushner. Mm, I'm so excited. We love Michael. I'm very excited. I think it's going to be really cool. And I'm really excited to hear his thoughts on Les Mis. It's such a... He loves Les Mis. He was telling me. So... Yeah. When I, I when when I got my headshots done with him, he was like, "I love Les Mis. I want to talk about it." And I was like, "Let's do great. it. We'll do it." Yeah. <laughs> Let's I'm get on very, the pod. I'm very excited to hear his thoughts on it because it's there's so much that happens, um, and there's a lot of room to have thoughts on it. So I'm excited to hear yeah. his thoughts. I know. Uh, but that's it. So thanks for listening. Yeah, it's been a minute since we've had a guest. I know. Well, it, I don't think I've, we've really had one this year. Wow, Maybe this will be a, this one. will be a fun one then. Yeah, it'll be good. Shake things up, do things a little bit differently. Yeah. Um, Love it. Great. Well, this has been a, a blast and a half, and uh, we'll see you later. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Won't run a week. If you'd like to support us, be sure to rate, review, follow, like, and subscribe wherever you listen. If you're interested in additional very cool content, you can head over to patreon.com slash this podcast won't run a week. You can check out all of our social media information as well as performance links in the description of this episode. Thanks for listening. We love you lots. Goodbye.